Our scripture reading for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and I'll be in chapter 16, verse 13 through 18. Matthew 16, 13 through 18. As you're turning, if you uh, forgot your Bible today, or if, if you don't have a Bible, we, we, we always have Bibles available on your way in. Um, there's a little table in the little lobby area there, and you can feel free to grab one of those if you forgot your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, you can actually take it home. It's a, it's a great Bible that we really recommend it. Um, um, so we'd love for that to be a gift to you if, you if you don't have a copy of God's Word. Matthew 16, Gospel writer Matthew writes these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore they come to us today with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching us. So let's hear together the word of Christ from Matthew 16, verse 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there are two questions that every Christian in particular must answer. And your your answer to these questions, first of all, will determine whether or not you are a Christian, but they'll also determine how you live your life as a Christian, what the Christian life looks like for you. And those two very important questions that we all should think deeply about are who is Jesus and what is the church? Who is Jesus and what is the church? What is his church that he gave himself for? This church that he is building. And these two questions are crucial and important questions. And they really will determine who we will be and where we will go as a people, as a church. Just this week, there was an announcement that the United Methodist Church is dividing. Uh, That that denomination of churches is going to be splitting into two denominations over the issue of same-sex marriage. And you might be saying, well, why is that such an important issue? Why should it cause a denomination to divide? Is Is it really, are they really just dividing over an issue of marriage or is it more than that? And of course, I would, I would pose that this division or this, this uh, decision, this discussion, it's really a question of who is Jesus? Is Jesus the one who has revealed himself to us in his word? And can we trust his word? And can we trust that the Jesus described in scripture is the true Jesus? Or is Jesus different from that? Is he less than that? Is he someone else? Even when we preach here, I always begin my sermons by saying, it's Matthew, for example, 
wrote these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, they come to us with the same kind of authority as if Jesus were speaking to us. We're answering a little bit every time we preach the question, who is Jesus? This is Jesus. This is who he's revealed himself to be. This is who he has said for himself to be. Who is Jesus and what is the church? These are incredibly important questions that you have to be able to discern and answer and know deeply. Now, there's been division over these questions. There's been division over these things. And that, and that from the very beginning of the church. The church has always faced controversy over these things. Uh, these divisions that we're seeing right now, these aren't new, right? I mean, from the very beginning, uh, there was this very famous division in the church um, between a guy named Arius and a guy named Athanasius. And it was particularly over the question, who is Jesus? Arius believed that Jesus was like God. He was similar to God. He was of similar substance of the Father. But Athanasius believed what, what became Christian orthodoxy, that Jesus wasn't just like God. No, that Jesus was God. He was God from God, light from light, as the Nicene Creed said. Very God, a very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And then what I just was saying, who spoke by the prophets. It's actually Jesus that's speaking through his word, through his scripture. So these are very important questions. And as we go through scripture, or as we go through church history, rather, we could see how these questions have been answered in different ways and challenged and questions, and there's been divisions. And how people have disagreed about these things. That's why, again, why it's so important uh, for us to think deeply about them. Who is Jesus and what is the church? There was another kind of division split in the early 20th century. And again, these have, I could, we, would, we could spend all day talking about where the church has disagreed about these things. But in the early 20th century, there was kind of a famous division in the church, particularly the American church, between what became known as the modernists. The modernists uh, basically began to question the authority of Scripture, right? It was a question of who is Jesus? Can we really trust that these are the words of Jesus? Can we trust that these things are true? Can we, are, are, are these, are the things that we read in Scripture more just kind of fables that help guide us along the way? Or are they really meant to be believed as true, as, as real, as historical? So they were on one side, and then the, the fundamentalists were on the other side. And the fundamentalists, at least started off, they had these five fundamentals of the faith, five fundamentals that Christians should believe. Let me think of it on the next slide here. The inspiration and infallibility of Scripture, the virgin birth of Jesus. They believed in Christ's death as the atonement for our sin. They believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the historical reality of miracles that we see in Scripture or the historical reality of the supernatural events that we read about in Scripture. But throughout the 20th century, this, this group of what became known as the fundamentalist, it kind of became known as when you maybe hear the word fundamentalist today, you may think of people who are kind of legalistic or a little closed off or maybe a little self-righteous. And you know, I don't mean any offense to anyone in saying that, but there's a, there's a connotation of closed offness or self-righteousness. And so in the 1940s, there was a group of folks that were incredibly committed to uh, the truth of scripture, holding on, planting their lives in the truth of scripture but they also really wanted to engage the world. And a lot of the leaders of this movement uh, were people that you may, have, you may have heard of. One of them was Billy Graham, who probably everybody's heard of. Maybe some people that are a little less famous that were just as influential, 
Harold Ockengay, Carl Henry, even people like Elizabeth Elliot, Bill Bright, were kind of this new movement. They had seminaries that they uh, really gave a lot of time and energy to, like Gordon Conwell and Fuller Theological and Dallas Seminary. And, and these people had a huge impact on what became the 20th century church and probably many of the churches that, that you and I have been a part of and many of the ministries that have impacted our lives were heavily impacted by these folks and their vision and, and, and what they became known as is the evangelicals or the neo-evangelicals of the world. There was a guy named David Bebbington, a historian. Evangelical is actually an old word that described Christians in the 18th century. They kind of said, we want this to be true of us. And, and Bebbington describes the evangelicals in this kind of fourfold way. He says, the evangelicals, the best way to understand it is people who are centered on the Bible. Okay, so again, deeply committed to the Bible as the word of God. Centered on the cross. They believe in the centrality of the cross, the centrality of uh, the cross for the Christian life, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place and that through faith in his righteous life, through faith, in, uh, through faith in his righteousness that you can have righteousness, through faith in his cross that you can be forgiven, through faith in his resurrection you can have life. Evangelicals were centered on the cross, centered on the Bible, they were centered on conversion, meaning that evangelicals believed in a new birth. There was a, a time in a, in a person's life where they place their faith in Jesus, where they experience regeneration or, or a word that, that, that evangelicals use a lot, being born again. And then lastly, Bebbington kind of wrote about this group saying that they were centered on mission or activity. Evangelicals were passionate about sharing their faith, about advancing the gospel, about taking the great commission to the ends of the earth. So this group, kind of up against the fundamentalists who were a little closed off from the world and up against the modernists who had basically become like the world, they were saying, look, let's engage the world, but engage the world standing firm on the truthfulness of Scripture. They were answering the question, who is Jesus? We find Jesus in his word. We find Jesus through his cross. We know Jesus through regenerative faith, and we, we, we join with Jesus to take his mission and his message throughout the world. Now again, today, I don't know when you hear the word evangelical, something else may come to mind. I don't know what you think. You may think of it as a political group. You may think of it as kind of fundamentalistic. But at least where it began, these, these ideas centered on the Bible, centered on the cross, centered on the new birth or conversion, centered on mission and being active in your faith. These are, these are ideas that I can really get behind. And, and, and these leaders that I mentioned before, people like Elizabeth Elliot and Billy Graham and Harold Ockengay, Carl Henry, whether you know it or not, they've actually impacted probably most of your lives. Their thinking has really charted the course for a lot of the pastors and teachers and preachers that have probably been preaching to you throughout most of your life, those of you who have been in church. But I say all this to say this. Most of these leaders, these evangelical leaders that I think we're, we're answering the question, trying to get the question right, who is Jesus? Trying to, if you will, save what we understand as the gospel of Jesus. Most of them were not really church leaders. A lot of the most influential ones among them were parachurch leaders. Think of Bill Bright or think of Billy Graham, right? They, they weren't necessarily connected to a, a local church in a particular way. They, they were broader parachurch leaders of different ministries. The, the, the seminaries that they really attached to weren't really church seminaries. They were broader kind of seminaries. And so for the last half of the 20th century, kind of the era that I grew up in, some of you 
grew up in, we really didn't ask the question, what is the church? We were, we were spending so much time on the question, who is Jesus? An important question, a necessary question. But we kind of forgot to ask the question, what is the church? And so I think the church has kind of quit thinking about some of the things. There were structures in place. There was important things that we were doing, but we, we failed to really answer. We failed to really stress a, a lot of the, the why questions of why we do some of the things that churches have always been known for. So for example, churches began to stress evangelism. And they began to stress people making decisions. As we said, evangelicals believed in this idea of conversion and the new birth. This is good. But in the meantime, churches lost a sense of understanding of church membership and discipleship, things like church discipline that, that had always been a part of the church from the very beginning of the church, became kind of ghosts, became kind of dinosaurs in the second half of the 20th century. Churches began to stress programs. People liked programs. And again, evangelicals, we were focused on activity and mission and doing something. But things like pastoral oversight, things like pastoral care, that again had always been a part of the church throughout the centuries, were kind of lost. And pastors really became program managers and not really pastors, shepherds of people. Churches became known again, for their great worship services and charismatic church leaders. Again, like a lot of these evangelical leaders, they were kind of centered on big events or they were centered on some sort of charismatic leader that could draw a big crowd. But things like understanding church membership, things like prayer meetings, things like members meetings, things like an understanding of con congregationalism and people being involved uh, in the life of the church well, was kind of lost. Some churches, even things like the sacraments, like taking of the Lord's Supper, even baptism, or prayer during a worship service, were kind of pushed to the side. And so over the next four weeks, I want us to ask that question. What is the church? What does the Bible say that the church is? What, what are we supposed to be? How are we supposed to live out this life? What is this church that Jesus is building here? It's something that we've been talking about for the last three years at Christ's Covenant, but something that over the next four weeks I really wanna explicitly talk about with you and really dive into the text and, and ask you to join me in thinking deeply about these things. Again, who is Jesus? What is the church? These are enormously important questions for your life. So this passage, Matthew 16, it's one of the only places actually in the gospels, there's actually only two places in the gospels where the word church is used. However, the word church is used 111 times, or the, what is the Greek, ekklesia, 111 times throughout the New Testament. Sometimes the word ekklesia refers to what we know as the universal church, or what some people call the big C church, or what some people call the invisible church. There's a lot of different names for it. And this is kind of all Christians everywhere at all times, the, the followers of Jesus that are there in the world. But most of the time in the New Testament, when the word ecclesia is used, it's referring to the local church, right? The visible church, the little c church, the, the actual gathering of believers in a particular place. And, and, and there's, it's, ecclesia is a little bit hard to define, but I think for the purposes of the d discussion I wanna have with you today, it certainly means more than this, but I think we can at least start with this as a working definition. The ecclesia is a people of common belief who gather for worship and edification 
and who scatter for a common mission, a people of common belief who gather for worship and edification and who scatter for common mission. And actually we see everything that we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks in in much greater detail. We see them at a high level today in our text. So first, I I just want to give you, really the point of today is to kind of introduce this idea, get us thinking. And we're going to dive deeper into all these things over the next four weeks. But first, the church is a people who believe. It's interesting, this passage in Matthew 16. Everybody's got an opinion of who Jesus is, right? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're this. Some say you're that. But who is Jesus? You you have to answer this question. We begin church membership really with, with this question. Who is Jesus? Was he just a historical figure? Was he just a good teacher? Was he just a prophet? Was he just some revolutionary? Who is Jesus? Was he really God? Does he really have all authority? Can we really know him through the Bible? And how do we know Jesus? You know, one of the things that is kind of common today is this kind of thing, look, look, you're Jesus, or Jesus is kind of who you need him to be for you. Jesus will be there for you. Jesus is who you need him to be. But I want to warn you against this. This is kind of a postmodern psychological way of looking at the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus is not just a comfort food. He is real. Theology matters. Theology, I want you to hear this, is a science. If you go to uh, medieval colleges and universities, the medieval or the European kind of college and university system is different than the United States. You, they, they actually say, you don't even say I'm studying something. You say I'm reading. I'm reading mathematics or I'm reading, you know, literature or whatever. Because what you do is you have a supervisor. You sit down with your supervisor. And uh, I did some summer classes in Oxford. I, don't, I like the American system better, actually. It's easier. Um, but you, you, you sit down with the supervisor. They give you all this stuff to read. Um, you know, America, you can kind of just go to class, take a few notes. You don't really have to read the book. You kind of get it. European system, you have to read the book. But anyway, you go down, they give you some books to read, and then they give you a list of lectures to attend, okay? And at any European college university, they always post the lectures at the beginning of the day. And some of the old ones still have the lecture board. You go to the lecture board, and they post all the lectures, in alphabetical order. So if there's a lecture on architecture, it'll be first. If there's a lecture on biology, it'll be second. If there's a lecture on chemistry or whatever, it'll be third. You understand. But you know what's always top? In all the medieval colleges and universities, the old, the old classic ones, the first one that's listed, not in alphabetical order. It's the theology lecture. Because, as they say, theology is the queen of the sciences. There, there is a God who is objective, who is real. He's not just whoever we want him to be. He is who he is. And graciously, he's revealed himself. Graciously, he's shown himself to us. But but don't get by. Don't, Don't fall into this kind of modern trap of like, well, you know, I need Jesus to be this for me right now, or I need Jesus to be that. Jesus is many things, but he is Jesus. He is himself. And 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 our job, our life is to know him and to believe things about him, to have a posture in our lives to want to know him as he has revealed himself. 
And look, in this world of confusion, believing things and being confident in what you believe is only going to get more and more important. But Christians, the church begins with people who believe something. Secondly, Christians are people who attest to that belief. Simon Peter says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, one of the parts of being a church member is that we are confessing things together. We attest things together as a church. We have a church confession. We say we believe these things. We hold these things to be real and true. Christians don't just believe. Christians are people that can give an answer for what we believe. We can give, we can, we can speak to what we believe. We can attest to what we believe. And this is very, very important. And again, it, it's going to be hard for you and where you are, especially people in a diverse city full of different worldviews. I was having a conversation the other day with a friend of mine, and um, we were talking about churches and why there's church planting going on in Atlanta, and uh, he, he wasn't from here, and he asked me the question, you know, where kind of have all the churches gone? You know, one of the stats that we threw out when we were planting is, this is an interesting stat, in 1965, there were 166 Southern Baptist churches inside the perimeter of Atlanta, and today only 12 of those remain in any sort of viable form. It's an amazing statistic. And so we were talking about that, and this guy said, well, what happened? You know, where did all those churches go? What happened to them? And what I explained to him is this, it's, it's very hard to hold on to some sort of orthodoxy in a diverse setting, right? It, it's, whole, it's hard to actually believe concrete things amidst people that don't believe those things, right? Uh, when, and we talked about white flight. When white flight happened uh, for the cities, white flight was about white people getting away from black people. I mean, it, it is what it is. But it was actually a little more than that, too. Uh, J.C. Nichols was a suburban planner for America, really kind of created the suburban model in the 50s and 60s that, that so many people built, that so many people kind of bought into. And suburbia was sold as utopia. It wasn't just come out of the city. It was come to a place where everyone is like you, where everyone looks like you, where everyone thinks like you, where everyone believes like you. So really, white flight in so many ways was more than just white flight. It was this kind of run to homogeny. It was an escape to homogeny where you don't have to have hard conversations with people that disagree with you. You don't have to, have, you don't have to confront people that may uh, understand God in a different way than you do. You know, maybe you're a Baptist and they're a Methodist, but that's about as much as you're going to get. It's very hard to hold on to Christian orthodoxy, for example, when your next door neighbor on one side is an atheist and on the other side is a Muslim. And he's a good guy. And you like him. And you have to believe that, that they don't know God and that they're going to be separated from God for all of eternity. That's a hard thing to hold on to. You'll, you'll either kind of lose your orthodoxy, just kind of blend in into a nothingness of belief, or you'll move to suburbia, where everybody kind of believes as you do. And, and so I just want to say to my fellow believers in the city, in a diverse setting, where, where in, in large degree as we go forward as a church, 
we're gonna be continually living in a place where people vehemently disagree with you. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to know what you believe and you're gonna have to be able to attest to those things in a way that is faithful to how Jesus has revealed himself. And, and that gets us to the third thing and that's why we need this third part. We, we, Christians are a people, or the church rather, are a people who gather. Now this is not implicitly in the text, or explicitly in the text, but it's implicitly in the text. It's implied that if Jesus is going to be building his church, that there has to be a time where the, that church gathers to worship and be edified. And, and that's what this is all about right here. This is a time where God, through his word, through song, through prayer, through preaching, is building his church. And people ask me, when you preach, who are you mainly preaching to? You know, is the worship service about, you know, guests or visitors or people who don't know the Lord to come? Or is it mainly for the church members? And here's the deal. I, this is a public worship service. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord and you're kind of exploring Christianity, I'm thrilled that you're here. I think you've made a very wise decision because I think going and hearing the Bible being preached and seeing Christians worship is an, is an incredibly smart thing to do if you're exploring what Christianity really means. But my main objective right now is not for you if you're a guest. Again, I'm glad you're here. But my main objective is for the members of this church to, for that we are worshiping together, that we are being edified together so that we continue, so that we can continue to believe these things so that we can continue to be anchored, so that we can continue to be a people of common belief who gather for worship and edification and who scatter for common mission. And we desperately need this gathering. I just wanna, you know, Graham mentioned this about kind of creating a rhythm of Bible reading. I just wanna echo that. And I wanna echo this. You need this. You know, we talk about obviously being a part of our corporate worship service as a priority but oh, you, we, I need this. We so need this. You know, a couple of years ago, I gave you this illustration, but I'll give it again. You know, you ever go out in the beach, you go and play in the surf and you ride the waves. You know what I'm talking about? And you, I used to do this more when I was a kid. I don't really do this a ton right now, just by myself. But uh, maybe with my kids I do. But you know, as a kid, you remember going out, you trying to like body surf a little bit, you get a little float and you're riding the waves in. And you're out there for, you know, 20 minutes or whatever. And then all of a sudden you look up and you're like 200 yards down the beach from where you started. You know what I'm talking about? And you're like, how did I get down here? You know, how did I get down here? I didn't, I, I wasn't swimming this way. I was just trying to stay in front of my towel. Um, but I'm 200 yards down the beach. What happened? And, and here's what happened. You were so focused on catching the waves that were coming this way that you didn't realize the whole time there was a current going this way. And look, here's the deal. That's the way your life is like. You're gonna leave here and you got work and you got kids and, and you got stuff to do and you got friendships and you got stuff to manage and you got a repair to make on your house and you got this and you got this. And there's so many waves that are crashing against you that you don't realize that you are in this stream that's pushing you and it's not pushing you toward the things of the Lord. And so this is why this is so important. You need those moments where you look up and you realize, oh my gosh, my beach towel is 200 yards up the stream. And what do you do when that happens? You know what you do. You get out of the surf for a little while. You walk up the beach and you recenter yourself. And that's why you need this time. 
And that's why you need time daily in God's word. And that's why you need to be constantly in prayer, to be recentering yourself on what is true and what is real and what is ultimate. We're a people who believe, we're a people who can attest, but we're people who necessarily must gather. We need one another. We need the edification of this moment. We need to worship the Lord. But this brings us to the last point. We have to gather well so that we can scatter well, which is the last point. We are people who scatter. And this is an interesting passage. I, I think for a long time in my life, I misread Matthew 16. You, you could see how I would do it because it's, it, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So you kind of think like rock, building, fortress, right? But then if you really think about it, what is Jesus saying here? Gates, you know, gates don't attack, right? Gates don't attack. Gates are attacked. Gates are uh, pursued. You, you, see the, you see the pictures Jesus is trying to give here? He's not trying to talk, he's not talking about a fortress, He's not talking about the church as some fortress that's attacked. He's talking about the church as a force that goes out, that goes and takes on the gates of hell. And he promises that the church can even overcome the gates of hell. You know, the gate of a, of a city, of a city, one of the old walled cities, it was actually the, the strongest part of defense. Most of the soldiers, most of the interesting defenses, if you ever go to like a medieval city, the gates are like literally some of the hardest place to actually attack because there's, it's so much force there. And what Jesus is saying here is, I want you guys to be such a force. This is what I'm building is such a force that, that even the, the, the fortresses of hell, even the, the strongholds of the enemy will be overcome by the power of the church. Christians are called to, to scatter, to go out, we are not a fortress, we are a force. The, the church is a people who gather well, but then we are a people who scatter well. And I want you to hear that. You know, we came to Atlanta three years ago not to plant a church service. We came to plant a church, a people that would gather sometimes, but who most of the time would scatter. And that's the hope for our city. You, you don't, don't you see who you are? Don't you see who you are in Christ? Jesus has, has called you to be his church, his people, his agents, his temple, the place where the glory of God dwells by the power of Christ in you. The gates of hell can't prevail over you if you believe these things and if you live in this way. That's a church that can change the world. We are a people of a common belief who gather for worship and edification, but then who scatter on a common mission to go and change the world. This, this great mission of Christ, this great kingdom of Christ, for this great kingdom of Christ that never ends. Don't, don't, don't have too low of a view of yourself. Don't have too low of a view of what Jesus has done for you. You know, this isn't, a, this isn't another club. That you're, this isn't Kiwanis, you know. This isn't a bowling league. This is a new humanity that God has given to the world to redeem the world, to save the world from sin and destruction and darkness and pain. 
So as we close, I just want to be really clear in this one. And we're in these next four weeks, we're going to go into depth on all these things. But as we close, I just want to be really clear on some things that the church is not. Okay, we, we've talked about like what the church is, but what, what are some things the church is not? And just to be incredibly clear here, the church is not a building. And again, we oftentimes refer to the church as a building. That is a church or that's a church. And again, I understand that. I'm not necessarily saying you have to quit doing that, but just know that the essence of the church is not a building. You know, people ask me when I say I'm a pastor, they say, well, where is your church? I say, well, we meet in a middle school. And I can tell they always look at me like, what kind of church is that? <laughs> but it's actually, it's actually good. It's actually great because we're reminded every week Sutton Middle School is not Christ's covenant, right? We're just here. And we are grateful to be here and we love to be here. But this is not the church. You know, in the old times, they would call the church building the church house, which is not, it, it's good, it's appropriate. It, it, it's not the church, it's the house, it's the building. It's the place where the church folk get together. The church is not an event. Uh, again, this can be confusing because we, we talk about church like this, right? We say, I'm going to church, right? And again, I'm not saying you have to quit doing that, but it's really better that you say, I'm going to a church service or I'm going to a worship service or I'm going to a gathering of the church because the, the church is not an event. The church is not something that you can attend. The church is a people. The church is so much more than a gathering. It's, it's a people who sometimes gather, but who a lot of the times scatter and who are for one another and love one another. The people of common belief that gather together for the edification of one another and for the worship of God and who together are out pursuing the mission of God. Church is not an event. Church is not a brand. Again, I want you to hear this too. If you're a member of Christ's covenant, you're the brand, right? How's, what's Christ's covenant? You notice there's not like, we don't have like a quality control. The quality control is you guys following Jesus. That's our brand quality control. You're our brand, right? And as you're out, following Jesus faithfully and living for him, Christ will be glorified and it'll be good for our church. But as, you know, there's not like a brand here that people know. You, you it's, it's the people. Church is not a leader. Again, I recognize I'm one of the leaders here. God has given our church some great leaders and that is a good thing. Again, that's part of God's design for his church. The church would have leaders. But look, Christ's covenant is not my church. It's not Blake's church. It's not the elder's church. If all Christ's covenant is, is me and my vision, it's going to be a dinky little horrible church. Because you are the ones that are really, you're the ones with the potential here. You know, I say, if, if, if the hope of Atlanta is like people coming to hear me preach, then you know what we're gonna do? We're just gonna reach like Christian people. You know, but as you're out, influencing culture, changing culture, shaping the world, that's, that's where Jesus is really gonna be known. As I said, you're the temple. Don't you see that? You're the ambassador that Christ has called to that neighborhood, to that workplace, to wherever you may be. You know, and all I am is, you know, I like to call myself the temple repairman. Like, I, I just wanna get you guys in shape. Somebody said to me the other day, they said, look, you're really good at engaging people's interests. And that was one of the greatest compliments I've, received. Because I was like, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? I'm supposed to say, hey, you're good at this. Go do this and glorify Jesus while you do it. That, that's what I want to do. That's my job. But we're not a leader. The church is not a leader. The church is not a preacher. The church is a people 
And God's got a big plan for you and for your life. And the last thing I want to say on this is the church is not still. The church is not still. Look, if you really believe this, if you really believe that the God of this universe, the eternal, sovereign, almighty God of this universe, who controls all things, whose the galaxies are in his control, if you really believe this, and if you really believe that he is actually concerned with you and so concerned with you that he would give his son to redeem your life, that he would send his son to die on a cross to forgive you for your sins, that he, that he would send his son to call you into the life, the everlasting life in his eternal kingdom. If you really believe that, I mean, we say those things in church. Those are such big things that I just said. If you really, if we even just got a glimpse of, of that, you, wouldn't, you couldn't be still. That totally revolutionizes you. As I said before, don't have such a small view of your life. Don't have such a small view of what we're doing here. This is, this is a mission for a never-ending kingdom that we've been called to. And Jesus, is, Jesus has given us this fire. Jesus has given us this. We can't be still. As I had a chance to preach this week to some young leaders, and this is not in my notes, but I just remembered it, and it's awesome. But I, I was talking to them about Jonathan Edwards' sixth resolution. And uh, I love it. It says, Jonathan Edwards, American pastor, theologian, he had all these resolutions that he wrote for his life. Let's let this be our resolution for this year. And he said, his sixth resolution is, I want to live while I live with all my might. I want to live with all my might. While God gives me breath, I want to live with all my might. You know, if you believe that the eternal God of the universe has called you into this kingdom life, this church life, you can't be still. Live with all your might. Live for him with all your might. And whatever you do, live for him with all your might. You know, be married this year, if you're married, to the glory of God with all your might. Worship to the glory of God this year with all your might. Work this year to the glory of God, knowing that you are God's ambassador in that place, knowing that people are, are looking at the way you work. And if you really are working as a way to please the Lord, you're, you're working as unto the Lord, not as not for eye service to other people, but unto the Lord. Work with all your might. Parent with all your might. Sleep with all your might. You're going to have to if you live with all your might. You can't be still. So I'm excited about this. Who is Jesus? What is the church? These are two of the most important questions we'll ever ask. And so I'm going to pray that God would give us grace as we begin this journey together. Father, I thank you so much that you sent Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who is building a church that so many in this room, Lord, he is called to be a part of. He is called to be his church. He is zealous for his church. He loves his church. And so, Father, I pray that we would realize his zeal and love for us, that we would follow him faithfully, that we would understand what the church is, that um, 
would not be a building or an event or some sort of brand, but it would it would truly be these a people that have been called together in common faith and common belief for this common mission. So Lord, uh, plant these things in our heart. Build this church, Lord, even as, as David prayed so well, Lord. Build this church this year, Lord, in your way, for your glory and for your sake. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.